Everybody's still all right? Takes me just a second to get my spot, you know? My darn printer about ran out of ink, so I'm sitting here looking at my notes going, I have no idea what this says. It's about 35% black. Mm. All right. Man, I appreciate your word, Cliff. That was great. Um, this morning, we're in, uh, we're in the fourth part of a, of a series called Called to the Impossible. And uh, we're going to wrap it up this morning. What I feel like I need to do, if it'd be all right with everybody in the room, I feel like I need to do this because we have a lot of visitors. I feel like I need to backtrack a little bit and then come back and tack a little something on at the end. Is that okay? Okay. So we're going we're gonna, to like review where we've been and then I'm going to tack a nugget on the end. Is that all right? Um, I was going to go a little further, but I, I feel like we're just supposed to go back, track, and tack a nugget on the end. Um, here's the deal. I don't feel bad about that because... How many, of you, how many of you grew up in a house where your mama cooked for you? All right, this is, this is the thing about mama's cooking. This is the thing about my mama's cooking. Um, my mom's cooking, like, my mom would make, in, in general, she had like the same maybe 11 recipes, and they were in rotation. Was your mom like that? They were like the same 11 recipes, and they were in rotation. And there were, there were certain recipes that were really, really good, you know, that I really like. Like, my favorite dinner that my mom cooks is like these little... I mean, no one else maybe would like it, but I love it. It's, it's these little, um, like, thin pork chops, fried, of course, green beans, mashed potatoes, and macaroni and cheese. You know, that, here's the deal. If I take that and I, and I pit it against maybe uh, going up to Jeff Ruby's in Louisville with, uh, you know, a 60-day-aged dry steak that's two and a half inches thick, you go, which one do you want? You go, I'll take the Jeff Ruby's. But can I tell you something? It was, it was the, the little tenderloins and the mashed potatoes and green beans that grew me up, you know? So it's, that's, why, that's why I don't feel bad about, like, you know, reviewing sometimes and going back. And I don't feel bad about us hearing things over again because sometimes repetition is the best teacher and it allows us to grow up. It may not be the best thing you ever heard, but it allows you to actually grow. Is that okay? Awesome. Okay. All right, here's where we're at. Um, one of the things that we've um, been talking about for the past three weeks is that if you're a disciple of Jesus, invariably, in, at some point, you will get called to the impossible, okay? At some point or another, you're going to get called to the impossible. There, there, is a, um, there is a mindset that's within the church, and the mindset goes something like this. You need to come to Jesus because Jesus is, you know, is the, is, is, you know, the answer to all your problems and he's the solution to everything that's going wrong. And there's, a, there's an aspect of that which is very true. But one of the things that's underneath that, and perhaps is never said but is certainly implied, is that Jesus is, that Jesus is the safest place for you. Okay? No, there's an aspect of that which is true. But what I'm here to tell you is, is if you're actually following Jesus, it's actually the most dangerous place for you. If you're wanting a comfortable stable, uninterrupted kind of life, following Jesus is the most dangerous place for you. Because eventually, if you're following Jesus, eventually the master turns to you and he says to the students, that'd be you and me, he says to us, he'll give us some charge, some command, some leadership, and the leadership, the charge, and the command that he gives us will invariably be the kind of command that draws us into contact with the impossible. Here's what I mean. Jesus, we, we started in, in uh, Matthew chapter 14. Jesus and his disciples, they decide to get away for a few days and they decide to go on a camping trip. 
on the way up to a camping trip, they're going up a mountain. And about halfway up the mountain, they look behind them and they realize that there are enormous crowds of people following them. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Disciples, I don't know that he said disciples, but he turns to them and says, I have compassion for these people. So a healing service breaks out and Jesus ends up basically, basically blowing up a healing revival on the way to a camping trip, okay? It takes all day long. There's so many thousands of people. Everyone's pressing in to touch Jesus, to get near him, to get a word, to get next to him because when you get next to Jesus, solution comes into your life. And so a healing revival breaks out because of Jesus' compassion. It gets late in the day. It takes all day long. Finally, his disciples come to him, and the disciples say, Jesus, you've got to do something. I always think this is funny. The disciples are telling Jesus what to do. They say, Jesus, you've got to do something because it's getting late. We have nothing to eat. You send these people home. What is Jesus' response to them? You give them something to eat. Here's what I'm saying. If you follow the Lord around for long enough, eventually following Jesus is going to put you smack dab in contact with the impossible. There were probably 20,000 people out there on that camping trip. Jesus looks at them and he says, you guys feed them. And here's the thing. I've read the scriptures. I even read that passage like four times. And one of the things I never, I'm just joking. One of the things I never found in that passage was, I never found the part where Jesus was like winking at them. You know, you guys feed them. And by you guys feed them, don't worry about it. See, here's the deal. Jesus wasn't joking. He says, you guys feed them. If you hang around with Jesus, eventually you're going to get drawn into a life of being called to the impossible. Here's how it goes. Being a follower of Jesus means this. Being a follower of Jesus means that we're called to greater contact with the world, okay? Being called as a follower of Jesus means that we're called to to come into greater contact with the world. There's a mindset within the church, and the mindset goes like this. We need to get out of the world because the world's a bad place. You'll get tainted by the bad world, you know? As if the world had a disease that was going to jump on us. As if the world had a disease that we didn't already have. You know what I'm saying? So the world says... So there's a, there's a mindset that's very active within the church, especially the, the evangelical church at, at large. It's very active, and the mindset says, you need to get away from the world because the world is bad. You might get, you might get a disease in the world. You might, you might get tainted in the world. However, the testimony of God and the testimony of his son is that when God looked at the earth and saw that it was a, a pathetic mess, he decided to come down. And so one of the things that we have to realize is that the Lord wants to change our minds on something is that if we're called to be followers of Jesus, we're actually called to come into greater contact with people. Rather, rather than working off of the assumption that, that the world is going to infect me, rather than working off the, insum- the assumption that I'm going to be tainted by the world, we need to be working off the assumption that I'm actually infectious and I'm called to infect these people. See, here's the deal. In the Old Testament, you touch a leper, you become unclean. In the New Testament, Jesus touches lepers and they become clean. It's a total mindset change. It's a total mindset change. And so as followers of Jesus, one of the things we have to realize is we're called to actually come into greater contact with the world. When you come into greater contact with the world, you come into greater contact with people. When you come into greater contact with people, you come into greater contact with their problems. And when you come into greater contact with their problems, You've just run smack dab into the impossible, and that's the place that God has specifically appointed you to go and to be solution.
Amen? Amen. All right, so we're moving. This may not take as long as I thought. See, here's the deal. The call to be solution is the indelible ink that the kingdom is written in, if I can say it that way. The call to be solution is the indelible, irremovable, irrepressible, irerasable ink that the kingdom gospel is written in. What are Christians? Christians are solution. That's what we should be. We should be running around with solution. It's really not about retreat. It's about advance. So we want to do that this morning. We want to ask the Lord, Lord, allow us to to have a mindset change from retreat. And God, would you put us into a mindset of advance? That's the thing I always come back to. God, take me out of a mindset that says retreat and put me into a posture of advance. Because when God, when God saw the condition of the world, he didn't, he didn't take a step back. He actually came close. This is what Jesus says in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew. He says this in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. I think Raymond's going to put it up for us. Um, it's, it's a... It's a, little, it's a little nugget of scripture that's full of insight. And I'm just going to break out one part here. Jesus says, A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. What's Jesus getting at? Jesus is getting at, he's looking at his disciples. He's about to send them out on, on mission when he tells them this. And he says, you know, a student is above his master or his teacher, and a servant is above his master. It's, it's good enough for the, for the student and the, and, the, and the servant to be like the teacher and the master. Here's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is getting at a, a very simple principle for us that, that should, over, should be the, one of the over, overarching umbrellas of our life. And it's this. It's that, that if Jesus was sent to be solution in the earth, then my goodness, I am called to be trained up in solution as his disciple. I mean, that's the whole point. Yeah, we're called to be an extension of Jesus' ministry, and we're actually called to be an extension of his ministry right now. I also want to attack another mindset that gets rocking in the church. One, one of the things that keeps us unable to see that we're called to be solution in the earth rather than, than seeing it as purely God's job to be solution one of the reasons we haven't always fully grasped these two verses in the context that Jesus wants us to see these verses is because for the most part, the church has propagated a mindset and the mindset is this, that we're called to make converts. We, for the most part, for the last 200 years, the church has made converts and has come up remarkably short on making disciples. And I want, I want to distinguish on this mindset a little bit because it's really important, for, especially for us guys who are here this morning. See, making converts places a higher priority on getting saved. I'm about to rock some boats, okay? Making converts places a high priority on getting saved. Can I tell you something? Jesus almost never talks about getting saved. You know what Jesus talks about? Follow me. There's a huge difference between getting saved and follow me. You know the problem with getting saved? One of the major problems with getting saved is that getting saved is a one-time event. 
Oh yeah, I got saved back in 1974. I live like hell now, but it's all good because I got saved. See, here's the deal. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus almost never spoke in language of get saved as we know it. He spoke like this, come and follow me. It's, it's, a, it's a remarkably different kind of call. Come and follow me. There's a proverb, and I don't have it this morning. I can't remember it. But it ta- the proverb basically goes like this. That, <clears throat> that the, that, uh, it basically talks about that, that righteousness is a path, and along it you find eternity. It's what Jesus is getting at. It's not about, it's not about that one-time decision you made in 1974. It's about, do you follow him then? Great. Do you follow him now? That's the question for everyone in the room right now, is do you follow him now? I could care less about what anyone did in 1974. Do you follow him now? Where are you now? Another, another little nugget about, about, um, about an ideology that embraces essentially making converts rather than making disciples. Making converts places a higher value on doctrinal agreement. About to rock some more boats here. Yeah. Lord help me. Um, see, here's the deal. Making converts places a high value on doctrinal agreement. Here, here's how it goes. It goes like this. When, when, we, when we place such a high value on doctrinal agreement, it looks like this in real life. Come up to a person and say, Haas, do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Yes. Awesome. Do you believe that Jesus lived a sinless life? Okay, so here's what's happened. Haas has agreed with doctrinal statements. Okay? And, re- and this, is where, this is where making converts, it lives within the realm of, of agreeing with doctrinal statements. Here's the deal. Doctrine is good. Okay? I'm not going to say that. Doctrine is good. Agreeing with doctrinal statements is good. But when we, when we, place, when we place the value of, of discipleship underneath, underneath, Underneath converts, and essentially converts are people who agree with doctrinal statements, what we end up doing is we end up, we end up perverting biblical faith, okay? Because here's what happens. We end up doing the equation like this. Agreeing with doctrinal statements equals biblical faith. And here's what I want to tell you. Agreeing with doctrinal statements never equals biblical kind of faith. Can I tell you something? Let me tell you this. The biblical kind of faith is always action-oriented. Look through the Gospels, and when you see Jesus blessing someone or moving on someone's behalf because of faith, it is almost always connected to the actions that they have, that they have put into place because of that faith. Remember the woman who had the issue of blood. She was, she was bleeding for 12 years. She spent all that she had on doctors, and instead of getting better, she got what? Worse. She presses through the crowd. She lays hold of Jesus. Jesus says, ah, I felt something come out of me. Who touched me? The disciples say, you're crazy, Jesus. Everyone's touching. He says, no, someone touched me. The woman finally comes up, and she says, I just wanted to touch your cloak because I knew if I touched your cloak, then I'd get healed. And what does Jesus respond to her? Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. What kind of faith is that? It's not the faith of doctrinal statements. It's the faith that is action-oriented. See, doctrinal statements come after action-oriented faith. Doctrinal statements will almost never lead you into the kind of life that puts Jesus into action. Everybody cool? 
Okay. I was just meditating on this stuff this week. Everybody, um, I think it's, I think it's Mark chapter seven, all right? It's the it's the Syrophoenician woman. She's a Gentile woman. She lives outside of Jerusalem. She lives outside of Israel. She's not in the club, okay? She's not in the club whatsoever. Jesus is on. Jesus is, Jesus is actually on vacation at this point. He goes up by the Sea of Tiberias. Jesus is out at the beach, okay? He's trying to get away from everyone. And this woman comes plowing into the meeting, and she's like, man, I've got a daughter, and she's full of demons. And the Lord's like, I ain't hearing it. He totally ignores the woman, okay? And finally, the disciples come to him and say, Jesus, you've got to do something about this woman. She's trying to crazy. She's got a daughter full of demons. And, and Jesus is like, well, you know, it's not right that the children's bread be thrown to the dogs. And the woman says, yeah, but even the crumbs that fall from the table, the dogs get those. And Jesus says, for such an answer, your daughter is healed at this very moment. Your faith has healed you. It's, it's that action-oriented faith. It's faith that moves us into something. Doctrinal statements, almost worthless for preserving your life. Here's the, here's the value of doctrinal statements. Doctrinal statements put up guideposts. They put up, they put up fences and rails that keep us safe as a group. It gives us a context to work within. So I'm not trying to say, you know, let's throw doctrine out the window. That's not true at all. I'm just saying, let's don't value agreement with doctrinal statements over actually following Jesus. Because here's what happens if you value agreement with doctrinal statements over and above actually following Jesus. You actually get converted to the kind of faith that demons have. That's what James says. James says this in in James chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even demons believe that, and they shudder. Let me update for you what James is saying. James is, James is in, uh, in a New Testament way, repeating one of, the, one, of the, one, of the, one of the doctrinal traditions of the Old Testament believer, okay? James says, you believe that there is one God, good. Okay, let me translate that for you. Uh, in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's something called the Shema. It's, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It's like, if you're a Jew, you live, you live with an awareness of hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Okay, when God called the nation of Israel out, he called them out from, from Egypt at this time. He calls them out of Egypt. Egypt is this society that's full of all kinds of gods. They, they had a God for every day. They had a God for every season, a God for every plant. There's just all kinds of gods. And then the one true God comes in and shows his mighty hand of deliverance. And so out of that, you give hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. It's like, it's like the rally cry, okay? And so James writes, he says, He's writing to, to, to believers who, for the most part, are coming from a, from a Jewish tradition. He says, you guys believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. So what he's saying is, you guys believe, you guys believe that Jesus is the Christ? You guys believe that Jesus walked the earth? You guys believe that, you guys, believe, you guys agree with statements of Jesus was born of a virgin? Good. Even the demons believe that. What's the difference? The difference is when you become the kind of woman who presses through a crowd and realizes that when I get next to him, I get solved. When, that's the difference. And that comes from following Jesus. There's a, there's a tremendous difference between agreement with doctrinal statements and following Jesus in your actual life with actual people around you. So you can, you can live a life of doctrinal agreements in your, in, your, in your house, with your books, alone, 
and you can come out unchanged. You actually follow Jesus with the people who actually live around you, and it will change you, and it will change them. And there's a powerful difference there. Yeah, see, right answers and doctrinal agreement that are divorced from the reality of application are essentially nothing more than biblical trivia, suitable for winning games, but completely unable to change and restore lives. Well, I was going to review, but that took longer than I thought, so I'm going to not review as much. If you want to, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Because this is really the issue I feel like the Lord is bringing before our church right now. This is the issue. Are we going to settle for right answers? Are are, are we going to settle for being people who are just satisfied with answers? Are we going to settle for being a people who who have... um, who have our doctrinal P's and Q's in a row, or are we going to be satisfied with being followers? I want to read you some scripture out of, out of Mark chapter 1. And we're going to jump to three places. I normally don't jump like this, but I just felt like I had to do it today. I normally like to just get in one spot and plow, but we're going to do something a little different. Mark chapter 1, uh, 14 through 20. <clears throat> After John was put into prison... Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay he called them, And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. That last line kills me every time I read it. It's like, it's James and John, okay? John's probably 16. James, maybe a little older. And his brother John, they've lived their whole life with their father. They've been fishermen their whole life. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed Jesus. See, Dad? I don't know where we're going. Mm. I lo- this, is a, this, is a, this is a really rich passage, and I'm going to try to just hit the point that I want to make and not the 97 other things we could bo- bring out of it. But I want us to keep in, keep in our hearts as we're going through this morning that what we're talking about is the mindset change of settling for answers to, to test questions, to settling or putting our satisfaction in in doctrinal agreement, and, and I want to see us make a heart and a mind change to her. I will only be satisfied as a follower of Jesus. Verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near and believe the good news. Um, that, little, that little verse there, 14, after, after John was put in prison, what that tells us is, is that there was a shift that happened and it was, a, it was an end of one era, era, and it was the beginning of another era. 
Uh, John was the end of the, of, the, of the classic Old Testament prophet. And when John was put into prison, it was the end of that, 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 whole, that, whole, that whole thing. It was just an end of an era. And, and at that point, Jesus' ministry comes out. And here's what I want, us, I want us to see, especially as we've been talking about some things. What was John's message to the people? Jesus is coming, but what was his message before that? Repent. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, right? All right. Look at Jesus' message. What's Jesus' message? It's almost the same thing, isn't it? But, it? but it is a little bit different, and where it's a little bit different is really telling, and it's important for us, okay? John's ministry created an awareness of the people's needs to be forgiven, okay? John, John was out in the desert. He was wearing camel hair and eating locusts. And he's shouting out, and the Bible says, like a croaking toad. And he was, he was, he was crying out, repent. And, and John's message brought an awareness to the nation of Israel that they needed a heart change, that, they, that they, needed, they needed to be in right standing before God. Come out, be baptized. That was John's message. That was, even the baptism was his message, that, that you need to be washed. You know? And, and, and that, was, that was John's whole gig. And here's the deal. All of Israel went out to see him. What was Jesus' message? Repent, because the kingdom of, ne- of heaven is near. R- repent and believe the good news. There, there's a slight difference here, and it's an important difference. The difference is the kingdom of heaven is near. Okay? With John, you get an awareness of our need. With Jesus, you get, you get not just an awareness of the need, but solution comes. See, here's the deal. When the kingdom of heaven shows up, solution shows up every single time. Sick people came to Jesus, Jesus would touch them and heal them. Why? Because solution was available. And the solution is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' ministry is not just the ministry that points out need, but it points out that he is the, is the solution. And so when, so when God comes to town, it's actually good news. I love this because in some ways it goes against, it goes against the grain of the way we think that things would normally be. Um, how would you guys feel if, if, if God came to our town? See, a lot of people would hear that and go, ah, got to clean it. It's like if, if the president were coming to your house, what would you do? You would freak out, right? You'd be like, oh my gosh, there's dirty laundry everywhere. There's dish-. You know? There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a certain temptation to, to feel like that, like, you know, if Barack Obama would come to my house, man, we have to get it ready, you know. I don't, don't just show up, you know, let me have some notice. Why? Because, because it might not be good news. Maybe I don't want him to see the way it is. And so there's, there's, even, that, there's even that implication even when God comes to town. You know, there's, there, if, we were, if we could tell everyone, you know, camels will get ready because God's coming to town, there'd be some people who might be excited about it, but the people who had thought about it even for a second, they might be like, ah, oh, I don't know about this. But here's the, here's the real news. If God comes to town, it's good news. Because when God comes to town, especially in the person of Jesus, solution shows up. We don't, we don't, it's not just that we're aware of our need, it's that solution comes along. You know, It's, it's the best part. So we don't, get, we don't get, have to just hang out in awareness of my need. We get to move on into the, into the fact that solution has come as well. Look at the end of... Look at the end of verse 15 there. Repent and believe the good news. I want to say a couple things about repentance. Uh, repentance isn't even, 
Repentance just essentially means turn around, but it means more than that. It means to change your mind. It means change the way you think. Change the way you think in light of the fact that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? And um, repentance, isn't, repentance isn't, the, isn't the one-time call thing. It's not the thing we did back in 1974 when we got saved. Repentance is an ongoing lifestyle. Repentance isn't just the door. It's the path as well. And so when Jesus shows up and says, repent and believe, that the, good, and believe the good news, repentance is always, uh, let me put it this way, repentance is best seen in the context of the kingdom of heaven coming. Okay? Repentance is best seen in the context of the kingdom advancing upon a town, upon a person, upon a city, upon a region. And so one of the things that we, one of the things that we need to see is this, is that, that um, people's ability to repent is in some ways is in some ways based upon the amount of, of kingdom demonstration that there is in that region. Okay? That's one of the things that God's calling us to. God, is, God has sent his son into the earth to be solution. Jesus shows up with a kingdom proclamation. And, and the kingdom proclamation comes that the kingdom of heaven is near, which means it's, it's about as far away as your hand is from, from your arm right now. And, and not only that, but because the kingdom of heaven is near, the nearness and the presence of God and the presence of his kingdom provides an atmosphere for genuine repentance, repentance and genuine belief that leads to following him. That's why we want to press in for the kingdom. Because the more that we begin to demonstrate the kingdom, the more that we begin to demonstrate that God's kingdom, his ways, and his rule is superior to every other kingdom, the more that there is an awareness, the more the awareness comes into play and people are, are able to see what it is they're supposed to change their mind into. In verse 16, Jesus is just calling his first disciples. He's walking out. He's calling his first disciples. And we've already kind of had a little fun with verse 20. I mean, they've been with their father for their entire lives. It was the only thing they probably knew how to do in terms of making a living. Like, they, 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 like in, in these days, there was no plan B, you know? You learned from your father how to make a living because your father had learned it from his father, and that's what you did. There were no multitaskers, you know? If your dad was a fisherman, you learned how to be a fisherman, and your kids would learn how to be a fisherman. There's no plan B. And so, and so these disciples, they're, they're with their fathers, and they're with the hired men, and they've been fishing for their entire lives. And then Jesus calls them. He says, hey, guys, come and follow me, and they take off. Have you ever, have you ever read that and thought, what would make people jump out of the boat, leave my dad, leave, leave, my, leave, my, leave my future in some ways? Leave my ability to make a living for me and my family and leave my family in a, in a bad situation, at least initially. Anyone ever read that and thought, what would make people do that? I mean, the short answer is, is that they'd been found by something better, you know? They'd been found by something better. But the, really, the really point I want to get out here is that is that Jesus isn't calling for these disciples to come into a life of doctrinal agreement. He's calling his first disciples into a life of following him. 
and that is radically different. Everybody sees that, right? Jesus shows up. His call isn't get saved. His call isn't believe, believe that I am, that I was born of a virgin. Believe that I haven't sinned. It wasn't any of that. It was follow me. Okay? Now I want you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Because there's a progression that happens. Uh, Look at Mark chapter 3, verse 13. The disciples, Jesus is beginning to collect his team, and when the disciples leave, they leave everything. They cut all ties. When I'm, um, when, I'm, when I'm sometimes counseling people who have addictions, um, when I'm counseling people, especially who have like drug and alcohol addictions, one of the things I like to do is cause them, allow them to read Mark chapter 1 with me because, because Mark chapter 1 is, is the path into all kinds of freedom. Not just, not just for you and I, but even for people who are completely addicted to like drugs and alcohol, it's, it's the path into freedom. Those disciples left everything and followed Jesus. You know, and like when you're, when you're addicted to drugs and alcohol, you're not just addicted to drugs and alcohol, but you're addicted to the culture that surrounds drugs and alcohol. And so you end up becoming addicted to the friends that you have. And so there's no way to get free from drugs and alcohol with also out, without making a cut with all those people as well. And um, I don't know what that's about, but it just sort of came out. Yeah, Mark chapter 3, because there's a progression here. Let's read this. We're going to read uh, down to verse 19. Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to those, he called, those, he called to him, I can't read, he called to him those he wanted and they came to him and he appointed 12. He appointed the 12, de- designating them the apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, who he called Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, called them sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Here's what I want us to see. So in, in chapter 1, Jesus has called the disciples. He says, come and follow me. They jump out of the boat. They go and follow Jesus. A little bit later, Jesus runs into Matthew. Matthew's literally at the tax collecting booth. Jesus says, Look, come follow me. Let's get a new kind of life. Matthew gets up from the table, takes off with Jesus. They go and have dinner in his house later on that night. A little bit later, here we are in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus has, has, has got crowds following now, and, and now he's doing something new. And here's what I want us to see. I want us to see that, that Jesus here in verse 14, he appointed the 12, and he designated them apostles, that they might be with him, and that, they, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. What's the point? The point is this, that being a follower of Jesus, it's transitional in your life, okay? At the beginning, the, fall, the call of Jesus is to come and follow me. You leave everything you know, and you become, you become, uh, you become Jesus' first mate, and you're following him around. You follow Jesus around for very long, and then that becomes transitional, and you're not even, at that point, you're no longer a disciple. You're now what? An apostle. everybody hang with me here because this is going to be important for us. See, here's the deal. Sometimes when we come to the scriptures, we come to the scriptures and we read about Jesus and we read about the disciples and the underlying underlying current that's in our heart and even in our brain is this, 
that there's something extraordinary about those guys and it, it's so extraordinary that I'll never be able to live that kind of life here today with me. We go, well, yeah, you know, we go, I, I can't do what Peter did. I can't be where Peter was. I can't do what John and James and, and, and all those guys did because they're superheroes. Maybe we never call them superheroes, but the way that we relate to them in the Scripture and the way that we relate to the, to the Scripture itself we end up putting them in a position where they're superheroes and I'm somehow something other. Here's the deal. I've said this before, but I want to say it again. There was nothing special about Peter, James, and John except for the person they hung out with. And the person they hung out with was transformational for them. When they first were called and when they were first called, they followed and they became disciples. They, then they became disciples who followed. After becoming disciples who followed for a while, they transitioned into apostles. Sometimes people, sometimes people take this apostle thing and they, and they get too weird about it. They're like, you know, you know ah, God could never use me. He's going to use the apostles because they're the big dogs. You know what the big dogs are? They're just people who have followed more than the average person. Here's what apostles mean. Apostles just mean sent ones. Sometimes we make it about the title more than about the function, okay? Apostles mean sent ones, people who are called and sent to a target. What we've been talking about for the last few weeks is being called to be solution, called to the impossible. It's, it's part of what God is putting out to us now. I want to point out one other thing in the scripture because it's going to be really important for us. Look at verse 14. He called the 12, the 12 who had been following him, and who had maintained following him. He called the twelve, he designated them apostles, and I want you to underline this, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. What's, What's the point of following Jesus? The point of following Jesus is so that you can be with him, and in being with him, you learn how to preach, and you learn how to do exploits of power. All ministry flows from being with Jesus. All ministry flows from actually being with Jesus. See, there's, there are a couple essential ingredients that are, that are included in fulfilling our call to demonstrate the superior nature of the kingdom of heaven. And the first essential ingredient is, it's very simple, it's verse, it's, verse, it's verse 14, it's being with Jesus. See, following puts us in a position to be with Jesus. In being with Jesus, we get ingredient number two, we get the command and the, and the sending from the Lord. See, no one can be sent who isn't with him. I mean, it's just the most, it's so simple. Following Jesus puts us in a position to be with him. And being with him puts us in a position to be sent from him with power. Here's what I think the Lord wants to do with our little church. 
And I'll have to share some of this again because some of our core, about 40 of our core people are gone. Here's what I feel like the Lord wants to do. I feel like the Lord wants to transition this church in our mind and in our hearts. And I feel like he wants to put out an apostolic call to this church. See, sometimes, sometimes we associate, like I said, we associate the word apostle as a title more than the function, okay? That's, that's the huge error in, in the church right now is associating apostle with the title over the function. And, and one of the things I want you to notice here, too, is a lot of times uh, within the church right now, if you hang around people who talk about apostles and prophets and the fivefold ministry, one of the things you, you, you hear them talk about, and, and it's not totally inaccurate. There, there's definitely some credence for it. But, but part, of the, part of the trouble is they, uh, they talk about apostles, prophets, and the rest of the fivefold ministry in a way that makes it sound very individualistic and adds to, uh, only adds to, uh, it only empowers the title side rather than the function side. I don't know if you can hear this, but they, we, we talk about some of this sometimes in a way that only empowers the title rather than the function. And what we end up doing is we, we associate apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists with, with individuals, which is, there, there, there's, there are individuals who operate in those offices, but we, we do it at the neglect of the corporate apostolic call. Look at this and tell me who was appointed to be apostles. It's open book. The 12 disciples. Was it an individual call or was it a corporate call here? It was a corporate call of individuals who were called to the apostolic. So I feel like what the Lord's doing is he is putting out a, a corporate, he, he, would, he would enjoy sending out and, and giving us a, an, an apostolic commission at this church, not necessarily on individuals, not necessarily so that somebody can jump and go, I'm an apostle, listen to me, you shut up, you sit down, I don't like you, get out of my way, where's the money? But so that we can, but, but more as a collective people so that, so that God's apostolic call and God's apostolic authority and God's apostolic mission could be released through this church. Can we see that? See, the apostolic isn't necessarily about individuals. It's about a corporate, there's a, there's a corporate, there's a corporate entity to the apostolic call, and it's on the church, and it starts with those who follow him. Following him transitions you into being with him. Being with him transitions you into being, being a part of his, being a part of his apostle, apostolic, sent out, on mission ones who are called to find the problems in the world and turn them upside down. See, it's really, and here's the deal. This is where we're at as a church. This is about us doing it together. On purpose, I wanted to read the list of the names. And I love the fact that Mark and all the other gospel writers include the list of the names. Sometimes, you know, when we read genealogies or lists like that, we're just like, forget that, let's get the good stuff. But I'm telling you, there's some really good stuff in this list. Here's what I want you to see. See, we're called to do this together. Think about this. Jesus is the smartest person who ever lived. He was the best disciple maker who ever lived. No one could replicate themselves into other people better than Jesus. No one could care about the people that he was replicating himself into more than Jesus. And no one would have been wiser about about who to put on their team than Jesus would. And then this is who he gets. He gets Simon, who he called Peter, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John, 
He called them sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. What's the point? The point is this. On this, 12, on this team of 12, you've got Peter. And we all know Peter from the scripture. Peter is loud. Peter is brash. And to, to a great extent, Peter is a, is a man filled with failure, but at the same time, he's a man filled with faith. Okay? Like if it's possible to do it, what's Peter going to say? Let me do it. Okay? Right? <laughs> Who, is, who else is on this team with Peter? Thomas. Thomas sees it and says what? I doubt it. I doubt it. It actually gets way better. Check this. You got Matthew. What did Matthew do for a living? He was a Jewish tax collector. Okay, now we got to get this straight. He worked for the Roman occupying Oh, the, man, the Jews couldn't stand the Romans. They, they, were in, they were in on their territory. The Romans had taken over Jerusalem. And here we've got Matthew. He's a Jew, and he's a traitor, okay? I mean, essentially, he's a traitor. He's betrayed his own people to go work for the Romans and to extract taxes from them. And this is how tax collecting worked in those days. The Romans would come to the tax collectors and say, well, taxes are 5% of whatever, and uh, your, your living is just whatever you can extract above the 5%. So long as we get 5%, we don't care. You take your cut. So what would tax collectors do? People would come to pay their taxes and be like, dude, taxes are 15%. Everyone knew that they were five, but he had the backing of the Roman army. Tax collectors were very unpopular. Okay, so I want you to get this. We've got Matthew. Traitor works for the government his entire life. Has become filthy, stinking rich working for the government. Who else is on the team? Simon the Zealot. You guys know what the Zealot means? Simon wanted to overthrow the government. Simon was an anarchist. At this time, there were people, uh, have you guys ever heard of the, you know, like the Maccabean Rebellion and all that stuff? Okay, that was like 400 years before this. But in, in, in intermediate times, since then, there would be these little uprisings and revolts. And uh, there's a little tribe out in, the, out in the wilderness called the Essenes. And they, and they were like, dude, let's get out of here. Let's, let's, we, gotta find, we want Messiah to come because when Messiah comes, he's going to kill the Romans. We're going to get Jerusalem back. And so Simon the Zealot is an anarchist who wants to kill the government and overthrow them and get Israel back. And he's on the team with the Jewish tax-collecting traitor. Now there's wisdom in this, okay? We've got Peter who says, let's do it. We've got Thomas who says, I doubt it. We've got the tax collector who says, go Rome. We've got Simon the Zealot who says, let's kill them. See, I mean, here's the thing, and that's the, that's the drama that's involved here. Simon the Zealot wasn't just like, let's vote them out of office. He was like, let's take our swords and kill them. Okay? It gets actually even better than that. We could play this game all day, but we'll stop at this one. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which Jesus gave them this name, and he called them Sons of Thunder. Who remembers why Jesus named James and John the Sons of Thunder? There's a, there's a, there's a, little, there's a little encounter that happens. What was it? Anybody remember? They're, 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 on a, they're on a ministry trip with Jesus, and the Samaritans don't welcome him. And then what is, what is, what is James and John's solution to the Samaritans being unwelcoming to them? Yeah, they say, Jesus, is it okay if we call down fire from heaven and exterminate this whole group of people? <laughs> it's really what happens. Okay? Okay, so they're on the team. And who are they on the team with? They're on the team with Philip. Anybody? Uh, see, here's the deal. Uh, Cliff mentioned it this morning. 
Does anybody remember where Philip went on his first mission trip in Acts chapter 8? He went to Samaria. What's the point? The point is this. You've got two brothers who are willing to exterminate an entire people group with fire from heaven on the same team with a guy whose heart is bent toward those very people. What's the point? The point is we're called to do this together. The point, the point is that the Lord, would like to, the Lord would like to extend an apostolic call in this church and in this room and in this region and he doesn't want to do it based upon uniformity. He wants to do it based upon diversity. All kinds of people. See, here's the thing. There was really nothing special about these guys. One of my favorite little studies in the Bible is just to read through Luke chapter 9 and chapter 10. Because Luke chapter 9 is just one failure after another from the disciples. And then Luke chapter 10 is when Jesus sends them out and they, they kick the devil's butt. So here's the deal. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing inherently different about these guys and you and I except for these guys were followers of Jesus. Uh, here's the deal. What, the thing that makes a person dramatic in their life, and, and one of the things I found is, is that nobody signed up to live a boring life. No one said, yeah. I'm just looking to be average, you know? No one signed up for that. But the thing that, the thing that leads to a dramatic life, the thing that leads to being satisfied in your soul is following Jesus, okay? And it's following Jesus that transforms you into the kind of person who becomes solution everywhere you go. When Jesus was with the when Jesus was first calling the, calling the 12 in Mark chapter 1, he says, come and follow me. And, and then what does he say to them? I will make you into fishers of men, right? I love that line. You, you need to go back to Mark chapter 1. You need to underline it. Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. Who will make people into fishers of men? Jesus will make them into fishers. Here's the deal. When you follow the Lord, when you become a follower, and not just a convert to doctrinal agreement, but when you follow the Lord, you put yourself in a position to be formed by him. See, it's not, about, it's not about me loving God and trying to be apostolic. It's about me following him and him, his hand of formation working in my life and then an apostolic call coming to the group. One more example and then we'll be done. Mark chapter 10, 17 through 21. This is Rich Young Ruler. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I have kept all of these since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. Here's what I want to point out about this. This guy who comes to Jesus, he comes to Jesus and he has a legitimate question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Jesus lays out the answer for them and says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't defraud and honor your father and mother. And what's the guy reply back? He says, Lord, I've done all of that since I was a boy. See, here's the deal. This guy has kept the commandments and he's been faithful. And he's been faithful in a lot of the right in, in a lot of the right places and in a lot of the right ways. And he's able to answer Jesus with, with affirmation. But then what does Jesus do? He says, well, you lack one thing. And, and I want us to really see this. When Jesus says you lack one thing, he's not beating him up. What the Lord is doing is he's beginning to apply his, his shepherding rod to the boy. And he's beginning to apply discipleship to him, okay? That's, even in this moment, Jesus isn't saying, Jesus isn't putting out, Jesus isn't saying, you have to get these answers right to be with me. He's beginning to disciple him. He says, you, you need one thing. And here's the deal. When Jesus says you need one thing, Jesus isn't saying you need one thing because he's trying to make him miserable. He's actually trying to lead this man into the best kind of life for him. Okay? So when Jesus he says he looked at him and he loved him, so the one thing you lack, it's not about rules. It's about, it's about Jesus knowing the one thing that this guy needs in his life to be successful Go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Apparently, this guy trusted in his riches. What happens? You guys know the rest of the story. The guy becomes sad, and he leaves. What happened on that day? The thing that happened on that day was this man encountered Jesus. This man had lived his life doing the right things with the right answers. He comes, he become, he comes before the master of heaven, <coughs> The master of heaven begins to apply discipleship to him. And when he begins to apply discipleship to him, he can't handle it. And so he leaves. And here's what he walks away from. Those words, then, then come, follow me. Those are not, those are not loose change words in the Bible. When Jesus says, come and follow me, almost every time in the Gospels, Jesus is speaking to people who he is extending an apostolic call and a call to and this is the exact same kind of language that we've seen in Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 3 that Jesus speaks to his disciples who become his apostles. I think that Jesus is actually extending to this man a call to come and be one of my apostles with me. And this man looked at it and said, I, can't, I, I counted the cost and he walked away from it. It's a parable for us. See, Jesus' call is a call that requires total surrender. See, following, following you, you, you can, this guy, who knows how old he was? Let's just say he was 18. You can't live 18 years of your life with 95% surrender to God and then the 95% surrender be what's acceptable to Jesus. See, Jesus' call to be a follower is a call for total surrender. See, here's, what, here's the deal. I, I sometimes counsel people. I, I, I'm a terrible counselor, by the way. There's some really great counselors who, at this church. I'm not here this morning, but there's some really great. I'm terrible. But I sometimes, you know, get in a counseling se- situation with people. And, and what becomes apparent to me is that I'm sitting with people who, who have surrendered a portion of their life. And it's the one little portion that they haven't surrendered that's creating hell for everything else and everyone else in their life. You know, 
This happens all the time. It's like, well, you know, Jesus, I give you access. I give you access to my body, and I give you access to my sexual desires, and I give you access to my family, and I give you access to my children, and I give you access to my job. But Jesus, you don't have access to my money. And when, they, when you disinclude Jesus from that, that, that realm, then it just starts to ruin a lot of other things. And it, and it ends up becoming the stumbling block that keeps you from being a follower of Jesus on the next move. You know, it's like, well, Jesus, you can have, you can have, my, you can have, my, you can have my career choices. You can have, Jesus, I give, you, I give you my wife. I give you my kids. I give you my job. I give you... I give you, I give you my, my choices, but, but Lord, you, you, are, you are not allowed to have access into my free time and into my entertainment. You know, just need to blow off some steam, you know. And then that, that one thing ends up becoming the area that, that ends up disqualifying, not, not from God's perspective, but from on our end, that ends up disqualifying us from being able to move on to the next place. The next space with God. Here's what I found, and this is what I've come to believe about the disciples. The disciples, they were no different than you and I. They were just people who had more, who had most consistently surrendered everything to Jesus over and over again. They messed up. They messed up all kinds of times. But the thing they always came back to was that they would surrender everything to Jesus. And so here's where we're at this morning. We're at this spot this morning, and I, I feel like the Lord... Uh, wants to, to touch some people. And the spot is, what have we not surrendered to God? The spot is, what have we not surrendered to God? Because that's the thing, that's the thing that he wants access to. And that's the thing that will disallow, that, that, that's the thing that will disallow you access into being transformed by Jesus into the next season. Amen? Amen. I feel like the Lord's even beginning to speak to people already. Um, you know, I feel like if we'll let him, he'll begin, to, he'll begin to put his finger on the areas that he would like to be involved in. You know, Jesus, you can have my kids, you can have my money, you can even have my entertainment, but just don't, you are, you are not allowed access to my to my sexual desires. I'll keep those for me. Thanks. Jesus, you can have my sexual desires, you can have my money, you can have my family, but you cannot have access to the way I feel about my SOB neighbor who lives across the street. Because here's the deal. I know that what God wants to do is he wants... He wants to transition us from people who just have right answers to right questions into being people who follow him. And some of us have been people who followed him, and he wants to transition those followers, and he wants to, he wants to, he wants to give them an apostolic call. He wants to put an apostolic call on this church to be solution. Amen? Why don't we stand up this morning? If you're on the ministry team, please come forward.